scripture reading today is Luke 8, 1 through 3, and 19 through 25. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd, and he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anne, for reading. Uh, and in the meditation at the beginning introduces the new season that we're in. We celebrated uh, for six weeks the season of Epiphany, where we do the math on the amazing things that happens as Jesus enters into our worlds. Uh, I said last week, anybody, any Winnie the Pooh readers out here? Uh, this is Tigger time. Uh, Tigger is bouncy, trouncy, full of fun, fun, fun. Uh, this was my wife. She was full of fun, fun, fun. Uh, and we discover the wonderful fun, fun, fun. But this is the season for those of us who feel things deeply like me for Eeyore. Uh, when we go a little south a little bit and kind of confront honestly the things that are really hard in this world, despite the reality that Jesus has come. And the meditation uh, that I quoted, that is quoted in your bulletin at the very beginning, the last part says this, Lent is a time to intentionally confront all the ways the first Adam continues to control our lives, to gather these ways to the cross, and to let them be crucified with Jesus, and to bury them in the tomb, never to rise again. Epiphany is the time to celebrate the wonderful crazy beautiful truth about Jesus. Lent is a season to not forget that, but to take a deep dive and look into our hearts and the fallenness that we face uh, in light of the world in which we live. When you step into the biblical story, kind of the shortest way to understand it is God creates everything for glory. Then man falls from the glory for which he was made and all of creation does as well. When we open the New Testament, we find Jesus has come to redeem and reverse the curse. Uh, and then one day glory means that the curse will be no more and all pain and tears and sorrow uh, will be fully uh, extinguished without uh, without forgetting the memory of how hard this life actually is. So 
step in with us over the next several weeks as we move to celebrate Holy Week and Easter. As we look at facing our fallenness this morning, we'll look in particular at fallenness in the realm of gender, family, and storms. Fallenness in the face of gender, family, and storms. Uh, we began in verses one through three with something that's just really a setting. Uh, it was an setting meant to be understood for the parable of the sower that we looked at last week, as well as the rem- continuing events that we pick up today. Uh, but it's just a simple story, but it's extended, and Luke records it because in Jesus' economy and kingdom, women he restores to a, a vital and valued place where they are protected and included in the family of God. He mentions Mary Magdalene, which if you've read the resurrection account, she's the first woman who shows. Uh, We're told here seven demons were cast out of her. She was so oppressed and demonized by evil, Jesus had redeemed her. She couldn't help but want to continue to follow him. Uh, There's a woman who's really influential. Her husband is an officer in Herod, so he has power and resources. Uh, Another woman named Susanna that we're not actually told uh, who's uh, much about her. It's probably not unlikely that the woman that we saw two weeks ago, the woman of the city, whom Jesus had forgiven her great sin, and she's falling at Jesus' feet uh, with tears and kissing his feet, probably is among these women who accompany the 12 disciples as well. Uh, This really doesn't help Luke's narrative. In the culture in which they were in, uh, women's voices were largely muted. Uh, They were ignored. And so it would not have appealed to credible sources in the time to record women in the account. But Luke does so because Jesus is about uh, restoring creation and women to their rightful uh, place in flourishing his kingdom of God. And so though it's unpopular in the day from the cultural context, Luke goes here to shows very importantly kind of woven throughout his gospel the presence of women as vital partners in his kingdom. Here was kind of the common view of women at this time that Jesus is trying to restore back to uh, creation. Uh, A common prayer, you probably heard this before, of a Jewish man in that time would be this. uh, God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Oh, my. Uh, about 20 years ago, the Da Vinci Code was all the rage, and it emphasized, hey, there are these other gospels that got not included in the canon that maybe we should listen to. Here's the gospel of Thomas and what it says at the very end that really reflects uh, the culture of the day and will probably make you glad it didn't include, get included in the gospels because of how offensive it is. Uh, Simon or P- Peter is recorded as saying to Jesus this, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. What? That's not very enlightened, oh my. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh my. You see what's happening in that day? Is It's not just... Uh, not mentioning gender, it's devaluing the gender of women, and Jesus is restoring women as vital partners in flourishing his kingdom. Uh, When we open up the story of the Bible and creation that I mentioned a moment ago, 
We find that man and woman together are made in God's image uh, to together partner in flourishing creation. Uh, When the fall happens and mankind fall from the glory for which they are made, uh, it opens the door for women to not be protected and not deeply valued. Do you remember what Adam says when God comes calling? (laughs) He says, where are you? He doesn't even say, what have you done yet? He just says, where are you? And Adam, who was designed to be the protector and the valuer of his wife, says, the woman whom you gave me. And as we continue to read the Old Testament, we find women put in a place where they are, their vulnerability is often violated. Uh, bigamy and worse than that happens. And women are placed in this vulnerable, vulnerable, vulnerable place. But when Jesus comes to inaugurate his redemption, he is restoring women to a vital role within his family, within his kingdom that protects prizes, cherishes women in the way that they were designed to as active partners in bringing the kingdom of God. Following Jesus, following Jesus includes valuing and protecting women uh, in marriage, in family, culture, and the church. Without going to the cultural place that many are today where gender is erased, Gender in the scripture is beautiful and wondrous and is a part of reflecting the image of God. Uh, but the church today is also called uh, to treat women as, as vital partners in flourishing his kingdom in ways that follows the biblical boundaries on leadership but does not mute the voices and partici- participation of women in Jesus' kingdom. Uh, Jesus steps into the fallenness of gender, whatever the cultural context we find ourselves, and he protects the beauty and wonder of, of gender and puts women in a place of active partnership with men and seeing Jesus' kingdom come more fully on the earth. He just touches it. It's not a teaching. It's more an implication of something that's a thread throughout Luke's and the other gospel writers. But one I wanted to touch on because where we go next is looking at fallenness in family. Now, we all know this, right? Uh, From the families that we've come from, uh, from the fallenness in the families that we experience and are a part of now, we know what it's like to be in a fallen family. Jesus came from a family where he was sinless, but everyone else in his family was not. And so he experienced broken family systems even as we do. Uh, When he is uh, finishing up his message on the parable of the sower, a messenger comes, his mother and brothers have, co- have come to see him. Uh, we're not really given any indication yet of where, where they are and how they view Jesus, but they can't get into the room or the place to see him. And so a messenger is sent. And look at verse 21, where Jesus says this, this sounds so rude, but it's actually inviting and hopeful if we reflect. But he answered them, my mother, and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus is forming a new family. He's just finished his words about the parable of the sower. If you weren't here last week or just for review, we looked at the soils as hard hearts, uh, shallow hearts, divided hearts, and good and good and faithful hearts, where 
the seed of God's word so deeply penetrates our hearts, it begins to be expressed in our lives. And Jesus is continuing that theme and says, I'm forming a new family uh, that gets healed from the family dysfunction that you're a part of, that doesn't get fully healed until new heavens and new earth. But I'm forming a new family that orients around those with soft hearts to receive and allow the word of God to penetrate our lives so that we're formed into a new family with healthy patterns of relating and moving towards one another. Uh, The concept of family comes up in the biblical story right from the very beginning as well in creation. Uh, The man and the woman are given a mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God had just made all these expansive domains. And so it would have made sense to Adam and Eve when God says be fruitful and multiply, uh, that we've got to have lots of babies and children to grow and be a part of flourishing creation. Uh, So from God's very heart, he orients his mission around families. But the moment the fall happens and mankind falls from the glory for which we are made and God announces that the curse is upon the woman, do you know what the curse primarily affects? It affects her family. This woman who's made to be a vital partner and a beautiful nurturer experiences pain in childbirth, difficulty and pain in raising children, a desire to master her husband who might go passive with her. And then when she does, he often relates to her in a way that is not honoring, uh, but blaming and crushing. Uh, The fall hits hard upon a family. Uh, But when Jesus comes, he's forming a new Israel. He appoints 12 uh, disciples uh, who are men patterned after the men who led the 12 tribes of Israel. And we find in the book of Ephesians that Jesus is forming a new family that's shaped not just on lineage, but spiritual rebirth. It it says this, uh, Jesus is forming a new Israel, a new family where Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. A church is to be a new family of sorts. Uh, who are orienting our lives increasingly about the word of God, penetrating our hearts, repenting of unhealthy patterns of relating, uh, practicing grace and forgiveness when we fail one another, but speaking into one another's lives so that we begin to do the math on who Jesus is so that he becomes more and more real in our lives. Uh, I've been on the job for, what, six weeks? (laughs) So I'm deep in. I'm very knowledgeable. Uh, (laughs) I'm just still learning. Uh, The elders, we gathered this past Monday, and uh, one of them said, what are you finding out as you're meeting with people? My kind of primary goal, in addition to preaching and teaching, is just getting to know you. So if we hadn't gotten together yet, I want to and uh, would love to catch a lunch, an afternoon coffee, a walk, uh, a dinner together. But when I was asked the question, Mark asked it, and I said, what do you think? And I, this is what I said, no joke. These people are amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Now, I know what you're thinking, us? <laughs> yes. Within this congregation, we have seen new families formed of people who are so important to one another, we almost can't do life without it. In a congregation that's not had a lot of bells and whistles about it and has struggled through some hardship, 
God is deeply forming us in relationship with people that are vital to one another's story. It is beautiful. Now, if you've been around some, maybe you see all the flaws and the faults as any family does. But God is really doing something special here. There is love within this congregation that is so real that it's kept some people continuing to live here and be a part of the fellowship when it's not been easy to do so. Well done. <laughs> Let's excel still more. Uh, but at the same time, we do bring family dysfunction upon us that we bring into this situation and into our relationships. And per perhaps we may not even know how it negatively impacts our fellowship with one another. Um, there's just something about every family system that's really broken, and when you're a part of it, you feel it greatly and strongly. Uh, many of you know that my dad died just 10 days ago. I had had many chances, actually more chances than usual, to visit him over the past year, and I'm super grateful for that. Uh, when I was with him, uh, in July, July 4th weekend, uh, I think I stayed one day too long <laughs> because we were at odds and I wish I'd left a day early, just being honest. It, it's, it's amazing, no matter what my age is now, I can be 16 again when I'm in my family. I'd also noticed my dad had these little business cards that said, you make a difference. And this was my first thought, that's incredibly corny. <laughs> I said, who's he giving that to? Like the lady at Starbucks or I mean, his barista. Um, so two weeks ago, we walk into the hospital where he had been a hospice chaplain. And the woman who was his case manager came in and she laid her eyes upon him and she immediately started bawling and had to leave the room. She comes back in and she says, I'll never forget how you treated me and I've kept this. And she pulled out a little note that said, you make a difference on a really hard day. And all of a sudden, that wasn't so corny anymore. <laughs> it was beautiful to me. It, you see how being in a family system makes us extra sensitive and not too objective sometime about the beauty that we're a part of. Uh, but God is longing to create a whole healthy family where we start to do the math on the word of God and how it deeply, uh, deeply impacts our lives. Uh, one of the challenges in a family as well, and especially with church, is not only in a family system are your highest hopes for how you would be treated with dignity often raised and disappointed, it can also happen in the context of a church, whether it's this one or a previous one. Uh, and we tend to fall on one side or the other. When we're hurt, it feels better if we tell someone else about it. But here's what our pattern often is. It's seldom the person who hurt us. And so we sow discord in the family of God. Others of us might have an opposite problem, or maybe we do it both. Some, I call it the friends effect. Uh, when I did campus ministry up to 2005 and then came back again in 2021, never imagined doing it when I was the age of my students' parents, uh, but it was especially sweet, but I saw the friends effect. 
how friend groups were so tight that we enjoy each other so much that it becomes wonderful and a little idolatrous too. And we know it gets to be unhealthy when other people can't step in. We fall off on two sides uh, of either sowing discord or being so tight and protective of our little friend group within the church that other people can't step in. Jesus is forming us into a new family who treats with one another with great dignity and respect but allows others to step in. And when we hurt one another, we speak truth to one another in love and we repent of patterns where we might sow discord in the family of God. Uh, the beautiful, we're familiar with Jesus being the figure of the Son of God. The book of Hebrews also talks about Jesus as our older brother. It says this, Hebrews 2.1, both the one who makes men holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy are of the same family we're included in Jesus' family, rightly related to the Father. So Jesus is not ashamed to call, the, call them brothers and sisters. You might have a brother and sister you're not so proud of. Jesus doesn't look that way upon you. He welcomes you and embraces you uh, because of his work on your behalf that includes you in the family of God as a brother and sister along with him. And then let's face our fallenness in the last story, the one that's most developed in the face of our storms. Let's go back and look here because the drama is thickest and it's been the longest since you've heard it. And let's just step in to the storm. As we step here, I want you to think of a time where you've been really afraid in nature. Or I'd like for you to think of a present storm that you are facing right now, something that's really hard and you can't see your way out of. You there? I went on a hike, uh, a run that turned into a hike this week. I missed the trail directions. Uh, and I was like, am I going to get out? I, I can connect. But I can also think of some of the storms. That, let's put ourselves in the boat with the disciples with our storm and their story. Verse 22. One day he got into the boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go, go aside and go across to the other side of the lake. So they went out. And they sailed, he fell asleep. And I said this in our Sunday school time, you should come if you're not coming yet because we're stepping into the passage before. If you're a Jewish reader reading this story, your wire just got tripped to another Old Testament story related to a storm, right? The, the story of Jonah who fell asleep on the boat. Uh, that's where the, the conflict is introduced. And then next, and a windstorm came on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. Have you ever been there? Has a physical storm ever gripped you that you did not know your way out? Has a life storm, physical, emotional, pain in relationship, broken family some kind, in some kind of way, put you in the place where you just have to be honest with Jesus. I'm dying here. Here's the thing about storms that's true in this story and ours. Most of the time when we experience a storm, it feels like Jesus is asleep. He's not acting as quickly as we would desire. We really feel like we are dying here. 
Look how Jesus responds. He awakes and he awoke, and there was a calm. Uh, it, well, I miss. Uh, he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Jesus isn't even trying hard. <laughs> Jesus, the Creator, who spoke words, and the seas above and the seas below were created, and the dry and the land just says, like a child, be quiet and stay quiet to the storm. Now, now to their credit, they'd seen Jesus do some amazing things with people, but the disciples have not yet experienced Jesus doing amazing things over nature. Uh, they're starting to drink in his truth about being the healer, but they're in a situation that seems so impossible, at least in the place of Jesus, we are dying here. But when he awakes and he answers, he's not even trying hard when he says, peace, be still. He turns to them, and what do you think his face looks like when he says this? Where is your faith? I read it, and here it is. Where's your faith? I, I think with calm uh, that's reflected in the storm, Jesus' face looks at his disciples and says, where is your faith? I've demonstrated my authority over the fiercest of storms. Can you do the math? Can you take the truth of who I am and bring it into the storm, physical or metaphorical, that you are facing right now? Isn't that so hard to do? Because all of us in the middle of the storm turn into feelers of some kind. We're feeling the desperation deeply. And that's the very place that Jesus wants to step in gently to bring his healing power. And he invites us in the middle of our storm to say, where is your faith? Can you do the truth that you've heard and thought about me? Can it begin to impact how you're responding in this moment? And how can you do or live out practically the power of the gospel in your particular storm. Look at their response. And they were afraid. I think they're more afraid than when the storm was happening. They're less desperate. But look at what they do. They actually respond in faith. They ask this question that becomes our question as well. Who then is this that he commands the winds and the water and they obey him? Uh, when we open up the biblical story of creation, we see God speaking and creating ho whole domains, uh, showing his authority over everything that it is, inclu that is including the waters. Uh, when we step into the fall, what shows up? Thorns and thistles. And storms are going to come much later in the story, the story of the flood, the story of Israel in the midst of the Red Sea with the Egyptians coming after them fast. But Jesus holds great power, and when he appears in redemption, he gives us little stories like this that are a picture of what he's going to do ultimately one day. He's going to reverse the curse. He's going to reverse the curse so that all the storms of this life are turned instead into living waters flowing from his throne. But in the meantime, as we face the storm, he asks us, where is our faith?
He's not minimizing our fears. He's asking and inviting us to do the math on who he is, and particularly in light of our storms. One way this story can penetrate our hearts is the word the seed of God is designed to really is connecting this story about Jesus asleep on the boat to Jonah's story. Now, on the surface, you might find that they're different. Uh, how does the story begin with Jonah? God gives him a mission to go and announce uh, bad news initially that could turn into good news to people that Jonah just could not stand. And so Jonah's uh, action point at that place is, I'm going to board a boat to go exactly the opposite direction of what God's call is in my life. Jonah boards the boat, and he falls asleep. Uh, and when the storm grows great, just as for the disciples, the sailors come and awake Jonah on the boat, and they says, what? how could you possibly be sleeping? And Jonah says this. This is at the literary center of Jonah chapter 1. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God who made the land and the, dry, and the seas. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Talk, uh, talk about uh, a failure in this moment. His, his theology is not impacting what he does and how he lives in his face of the storm. But he's honest at least about this. He says, the storm is coming on account of me. So if you will throw me overboard, the storm will cease. Well, the sailors aren't going to do that. But the storm gets so bad, they have no other recourse. And so they actually throw Jonah overboard. And immediately, just like with Jesus and the disciples, the storm stops. Now, on the surface, it seems that Jesus and Jonah are quite different Jesus is not the cause of the storm. It's not Jesus' failure and sin that is, is putting him in the place of Jonah uh, like Jonah was in his particular storm. But do you know in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus actually compares himself to Jonah. And in essence, the story is showing us this. Jesus took all your guilt like Jonah, and our disobedience uh, towards God, and our lack of faith towards God, and he got treated like Jonah on the cross. He got thrown overboard. And the storm that resulted because of our sin, God hurled him into it, and upon his payment for our sin, uh, just as Jonah was thrown overboard, God stopped the storm against us so that we could instead be treated like Jesus in his grace and his power and his healing. Uh, the beauty and wonder of this story is Jesus got thrown overboard for our sin. Uh, for all the times we can't calculate how our faith uh, should flow into our life situation, Jesus took our punishment. Jesus took our place. Jesus got thrown overboard into the storm of our sin so that we may, might be right and spared the consequences of our sin. That's the good news of the gospel that he longs for us to see even as we face our fallenness. We are a family formed afresh where women are valued and protected and we're going to face a lot of storms together. But we're called to be so active in one another's lives that we call to one another saying, where is your faith 
in light of our storms as we move towards one another humbly to believe and rest in Jesus for us. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that we would continue to consider the storm that we're facing, whether it's a little gale or a strong force that has us on our knees. Uh, Would we hear you ask us to see who you are? Uh, Would you bring us to the place where we, like the disciples, ask, who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And may we hear in the stillness, you say to us, peace, be still.